thank you all for your flexibility, for being able to join us there. Uh, but we're coming back now to our study of, of Luke's gospel. We'll be in chapter 18, uh, looking at verses 15 through 17. And if you have an ESV or using one of the Pew Bibles, you can find that on page 877. Uh, so last week, if you were with us, if you joined us, Pastor Kerr uh, opened the word and we looked at a passage uh, with two men, two men at the temple who had come to pray. Uh, and we heard the prayer of the humble man, the tax collector, who prayed, God, be merciful to me. And that section ends with a teaching that we've heard in Luke before, that he who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So in our section this morning and some of the accounts that follow, it's uh, a picture, in a way, of that humility that we're supposed to see. So as we come uh, to look at humility, uh, before we study, before we come to our text, let's go once again uh, and join in prayer. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would uh, take this, sort, this short section, apply it to our hearts, apply it to our lives. Lord, we pray that you would uh, help us to see your kingdom, that we might receive it like children, as this uh, text encourages us to do. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So here now, from Luke chapter 18. Now they were bringing even infants to him, that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called to him, saying, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add his rich blessing as we study it together. About four and a half years ago, my nephew was born. It's a wonderful story, uh, but it's not so easy as him just being born. My sister had just found out she was pregnant, so she was several weeks along, maybe a couple of months uh, but about a week after she discovered that she was pregnant, uh, she started to feel bad on a Saturday. So she went to bed trying to uh, sleep it off. The next day, she wasn't any better. She tried to take some pain relievers. Uh, she wasn't able to fall asleep again uh, Sunday night. So about midnight, uh, she and my brother-in-law went to the ER. And there they spent the night in the ER as the doctors tried to figure out what was, what was happening. And there initial thought was that it was an ectopic pregnancy. Now, for those of you who don't know what that is, it's when uh, the child doesn't move into the womb. So the child begins to grow and develop without uh, being where they're meant to be uh, as they grow and develop. It's a uh, life-threatening condition for the mother. It's certainly uh, life-threatening for the child. The doctors in the ER, they see patients all the time. To stop and deal with a pregnancy, they have to change their whole way of doing things. So they recommended, let's wait till Monday morning until a specialist can come uh, and see what's going on and help out. So Monday morning, uh, the specialist comes and, and says, we need to take you in for surgery uh, right now. If this is, in fact, an ectopic pregnancy, the sooner we do it, uh, the better chance we have of uh, there being no complications and, and your life uh, won't be in danger. So my sister made a few phone calls, uh, a few goodbye phone calls, just in case. Uh, so I got one of those, and I said to my boss, I'm leaving. I'm going to go to the hospital now. Um, 
and I took off, and I uh, sat in the waiting room with my brother-in-law, about 10, excuse me. About 10.30 that morning, uh, the doctor came in and called for my brother-in-law, and uh, my brother-in-law said, hey, can, can Andrew come as well? He's family. So we went back and, and talked with her, and she said, I uh, am at the end of a 24-hour shift, and I'm, I'm a prenatal surgeon. I don't typically get to give people good news. That's, that's not really what I, what I get to do, but I get to go home giving you good news. My sister had appendicitis. <laughs> uh, so you can see how I'm dealing with that right now. <laughs> um, so we knew before my sister did uh, that she was still pregnant and that though there might be some complications down the road, the, the surgeon was very, help, very hopeful that everything would be fine. Uh, so now, uh, my nephew's four. Uh, he likes Spider-Man and wrestling with anyone who will play with him. He hates being wet. Like if he spills something on his shirt, he just undresses, all of it's coming off. Uh, he growls at my father, at his grandfather. They growl at each other like bears. It's, it's their thing, I, I don't know. He's a normal four-year-old boy in, in every regard. Uh, but it was before he was even born that I realized just how helpless he was. He could do nothing for himself. His parents could do nothing to help him. The doctors for a time thought there was nothing they could do uh, to help him. And so it's these qualities, this, this helplessness, this vulnerability and our, uh, this, this utter dependence on something out, outside of ourselves that as we come to this passage and we see parents, families bringing their children to Jesus that we have to keep in mind. That's the image here. So as we look at some of these qualities, that humility, that dependence, that vulnerability, we're going to study the kingdom of God. With just a few short verses to examine, uh, but there's some very important teachings here. So we'll begin looking at first what it means to receive the kingdom like a child. And then we're going to turn and look at the kingdom itself. What's the nature of the kingdom? That's our outline. So our text this morning begins with people, parents, families, bringing, the text says, even infants to Jesus that they might touch him. Now this word here in verse 15, it's a bit unusual. You don't see it too often in scripture. It shows up a couple of other times, but more often you see the word children, uh, and there are a couple of different words for children, uh, kind of like we have. Uh, they're words that are separated by ages, right? We have infants and toddlers and adolescents and tweens, whatever those are. I'm, I don't know. I don't have kids. We have all these different words that are differentiated by age. And so this word here, infant, certainly means what we think of when we think of the word infant, but it also includes ch children that haven't yet been born when a mother's pregnant. Now, I don't think what's happening is that there are pregnant women coming up to Jesus asking for his blessing. That's not the indication in the text here. But I point this out because this points to the helpless nature of these children. It's children that are still being carried. You know, humans aren't born like giraffes, and they pop out, and a couple of hours later, they're walking around. No, you all know what children are like. They are utterly 
helpless, in need of help. To put it simply, I know that sounds repetitive. They're not the only ones. Parents need help too, as the saying goes, it takes a village to raise a child, right? So parents want what's best for their children. So they're coming to this rabbi, this priest, this prophet, and, and sure, some of them would have certainly believed that Jesus was the Messiah, but they're coming for a blessing. They're coming to have their children touched by Jesus, wanting their help, wanting, wanting his help in raising their children. And so they're full of this hope, this excitement, and this, this natural and, and good parental desire that they want their children to, to do well, to succeed, to thrive, and, and even uh, to survive. In this culture where, uh, you know, we don't have the medical technology, uh, they didn't, that we have now today. Infant mortality rate was so high at this point in time. It makes sense that they would want this. So they're bringing their children to Christ with, with some hope. Help my child, help him do well, help him survive. And the disciples rebuke them, send them away. So we read this and we think, how could this happen? These are the 12. These are the disciples, the ones who walked with Jesus day in and day out for years. And they heard his teaching. They were right beside him all the time. How could this happen? And how could these 12 do that? Well, part of it can, can help us understand is, is knowing what families were like in the first century and, and, and before. When we say the word family, we, we typically think of, uh, you know, a husband and a wife, and they, they live in the same household with, with their children. Uh, but in the first century, it, it might have included grandparents, even great-grandparents. Sometimes there were, there were four generations even living under a single roof. So lots of people needed help. It wasn't just the children that needed help then. But as I, as I researched and I studied, I'm, I'm looking through uh, books and, and online trying to find what, what were children's lives like? What did children do in the first century? How did they spend their time? What was it like? And I, it was hard to find really anything. Uh, and we see that even in the life of Jesus. We, we have the, the wonderful, miraculous account of, of his birth. And what an encouraging and wonderful account to read in the Gospels of, of his birth. But then all of a sudden he's 30. And he's beginning his public ministry. And yes, there's that one story in Luke chapter 2 that you're all thinking of right now, I'm sure, where he shows up in the temple and, and he's 12. And he's sitting there uh, listening, engaging, interacting, asking questions. And the text tells us he was, he was growing and maturing and, and growing in favor with, with God and man. Uh, and so maybe as a 12-year-old, that's when he was finally allowed to participate in the temple. Uh, maybe. We can't find anything super definite to tell us. And so just this lack of information that we have about children, maybe that speaks to how overlooked they were. We can find lots about, about family structures and how the father was the head of the household, even in Greco-Roman cultures as well as the Jewish cultures. You can find lots of information on that. You can't find much on children. So it goes to make sense that they're the ones overlooked, the ones aren't paid attention to. So as the disciples are, are shooing away these parents bringing their children, uh, they don't want to bother Jesus. 
These are the ones that are overlooked. But Jesus takes uh, this moment to correct them. He says, no, children aren't trifling. They're not unimportant. They're not uh, something we can deal with later if we have time. Christ says, let them come to me. So it becomes easy to scoff at them. Much like in our passage last week as the Pharisees scoffed at the tax collector. I'm glad I'm not like them. I'm glad I don't shoo the children away. It becomes easy to do that. Doesn't this happen in churches? Sometimes the children get overlooked. Some churches separate children out and they don't, they don't hear the sermon as if children didn't need to hear the gospel as well. And maybe that's not the case. And, and sure, maybe there's a message for, for children there. And, and so maybe I'm being a bit unkind and a bit unfair with that. Um, or perhaps we tend to think of, of youth leaders or youth volunteers or Sunday school workers. Um, they're the ones really, they're just babysitting while the adults go and figure out the important things. Right? Now, I, I know Redeemer. Uh, that's not the attitude that Redeemer has. Right? Uh, I have seen the way that you all care for our children and love and serve our youth and have even encouraged me as I've tried to do those things as well. I know that's not the case, but it is a warning. It is something we ought to be aware of and we ought to guard against. Because make no mistake that the youth ministry, serving our children, the nursery, even, even the infants, serving them, that is the work of the church. That's the work of Christ. We see this Jesus as he often did. He reaches out to those who would be overlooked, who would be forgotten, those who rightly need the saving touch of our king. He reaches out to them and he offers it. And so he takes the chance to correct his disciples. He rebukes their rebuke. And in doing so, he, he gives us this vital teaching about the kingdom that to such as these children, such as these infants belong the kingdom of God. That it's to those who are children and who come to God as a child in need, in need of that life-giving sacrifice of Christ, to those belong the kingdom. And certainly this is one of the reasons this section is included. We've just heard this teaching last week on humility, and here we see the need of a child, the helplessness of a child, the one who's overlooked Christ says, let them come to me. Now, apart from our Savior, apart from Christ, aren't we all this needy? Isn't this what sin does to us? It makes us helpless. In Psalm 51, David reminds us that it is in iniquity that we are brought forth. Romans tells us that the wages of sin is death. So if you put these together, we are sinners dead on arrival. We're helpless like children in need, in need of the great teacher, in need of that rabbi, in need of the healing touch. We're the ones in need of Jesus. We need healing, saving, and we need to enter into his kingdom. So we have to notice the precise wording here. As we've seen the helplessness of children, we'll see that it's a passive action of receiving the kingdom. It's a passive, not an active thing, just like a children receives the help that they get. 
as we move to look more directly at the kingdom itself, we have to begin and keep in mind this passive understanding. So look back with me, if you will, at verse 17. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. This phrase, whoever does not receive the kingdom. Receive, again, it's that passive action. It isn't, uh, it's not us conquering the kingdom. It's not us going out and working and building the kingdom more. No, we're recipients. We're the, the passive action of this. And it's not just here in this section in Luke where we see this. Uh, we see it in many other places. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Is another passive understanding. Theirs is. Or seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and these things will be given to you. Or again, do not be afraid, little flock, for the Father is pleased to give you the kingdom. Or as Christ himself teaches in another place, the kingdom has come near, repent and believe. So it's this passive idea we see all over scripture that this kingdom isn't something that we're winning. It's not something that we're doing. It's not something that we're conquering. It's something we're being given, something we're receiving. And this passive idea even shows up in the way we pray. We prayed it just a few moments ago. When we prayed the Lord's prayer. We pray, thy kingdom come. It's passive action. It's not us doing the action. And so what do we pray when, when we pray thy kingdom come? And here the, the Westminster Shore Catechism is helpful. When we pray thy kingdom come, we pray that Satan's kingdom may be destroyed, that the kingdom of grace may be advanced, ourselves and others brought into it and kept in it, and that the kingdom of glory may be hastened. So in that, that answer, in that part of our catechism, we, uh, we find a number of things. First, that Satan's kingdom would be destroyed, that the ruler, the prince of the power of the air, that his kingdom would come to ruin. And so who will destroy that kingdom? Who has conquered death in that way? Well, that's, that's Christ. Certainly that's Christ. So we pray that in the kingdom of grace would be advanced. And before we get into this, I think it, it would be helpful for us to pause and just consider some definitions, define perhaps what we're talking about. Because we read about the kingdom of God, or sometimes you'll read the kingdom of heaven. Uh, those are often interchangeable. And you could read book after book after book on the kingdom of God. You can read it all over scripture, just the phrase. You uh, can read journal article after journal article after blog post after blog post and master's thesis after doctoral dissertation on what the kingdom of God is. There is so much being written and said about this. Uh, that it would be hard to summarize all of that. Uh, but we have to have some understanding of what this is, so that we can, we can talk about what this means. Uh, so in defining this, I'm going to use the word place. I don't mean a geographical place. I don't mean a, a place that you can point to on a map. I don't mean something topographical or geographical. It's not something like that. Uh, I mean place in, in more the sense of, of sphere of influence, though that doesn't quite hit it as well. Uh, so I'm going to use the word place, but forgive me for the lack of clarity even on that. So the kingdom of God is, is the collection of God's people, of 
of God ruling over them. It's a kingdom where, very simply, God is king. And, and I don't want to say recognized as king, because whether you recognize it or not, he's still king, right? But it's the place where he is in relation with his people. So that begs the question, because there's a problem built into that. How can a holy, perfect, just, and righteous God, holy, perfect, just, and righteous king, dwell with unholy, sinful, treacherous people? He can't. We can't come into his presence. We're great sinners. We're traitors. We're rebels against the great sovereign God the one who created all things. So this is the problem of sin. So this begs the question, how do, we, how do we change our allegiance? How do we become servants of the most high God? Our sins have to be forgiven. That's the only way. We have to have our sins forgiven. So we were given Israel as, as a, uh, an earthly, physical example of a kingdom that points to, to the spiritual reality of the kingdom of God. And so in Israel, they were given a sacrificial system. We see it clearly on, on the Day of Atonement, when the high priest would have to go in and he would, he would offer bulls and goats and rams for his own sin, for the sins of his family, and eventually for the sin of the whole people of Israel. But it wasn't the perfect sacrifice. It wasn't the ending sacrifice. They had to do it again next year and the next year, and the next year. This wasn't uh, canceling sin. This wasn't canceling that record of debt that sin creates. This was just postponing it until the next year. This was appeasement. It's putting off of the punishment. They needed a perfect sacrifice, a holy sacrifice. They needed their Messiah. They needed Christ. They needed God himself to come and offer himself for forgiveness. And that's what Christ has done. He's canceled our record of debt, justified us in the sight of God, and given us his righteousness. Even while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So that's the kingdom. It's where there's forgiveness of sins. It's where God rules over his people and dwells with them and we can dwell with him because he has given us forgiveness, saved by his grace. And that all comes through the person of Christ and his work on the cross. His life on earth brought forth the, the kingdom of grace, as it said back in our catechism. It's the kingdom that was established by Christ's work on earth and his death and burial and resurrection. So we pray that that kingdom would be advanced in other words, that more people would come to know the saving grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. We also pray for the coming of the kingdom of glory. When the fullness of the people of God is complete. When the answer to those sitting under the altar in Revelation, crying out, how long, O Lord, when that answer is now. We pray for that coming. When Christ returns and glory and gathers all his people to himself, we pray for that to hasten, that his kingdom will come quickly. And so we come back to this idea of the kingdom being passive, because it's not ours. 
It's the kingdom that belongs to our God, who's ruled by him, who's working his kingdom in the world. It's the kingdom that we have to receive like children. It's a kingdom that we we can't win our way into, we can't earn our way into. It's a kingdom that, that we as sinners committed treason against. And the great high king of heaven has seen fit to forgive us of our debts if we belong to Christ. We deserve nothing. We do not deserve salvation. So the only way we can come into that kingdom is like little children, helpless and in need of a savior. For it's by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. We can't force our way into the kingdom. We can't do enough to earn our way in. We have to receive this gift like a child in humility. So don't hinder the children from coming to the Lord. Let them come. Let us all come like children to the kingdom and to the king who has forgiven us. Let's pray. Father God, we are so grateful that we can pray even that way to call you Father. Because you have called us to come and to speak to you as children, that we might receive your kingdom and enter into it. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for being our Father, for calling your people to yourself, that we have access to you, that you hear our prayers, and that we can enter into your kingdom. Father, thank you so much. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we uh, come to the table this afternoon, we come to a table that reminds us of how Christ established his kingdom. It was through his death on the cross, his burial, his resurrection. It was through this that he brought us into his kingdom. So if you're a member of his kingdom, if you have been united to Christ, then this table is for you. If you have made a public proclamation of faith, if you have joined yourself to his church, it doesn't have to be this church, but if you have joined yourself to a church where the gospel is preached faithfully, then come. Come and be fed like a child. Have your faith strengthened at the table. But if you haven't, if you have not yet joined yourself to his church, or you're not a member in good standing, we pray that you would let the elements pass and consider how you might receive the kingdom like a child. So now we read the words of institutional view. We find them in 1 Corinthians. That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks,